Father, as we come to your word again this morning, we need guidance from you. Human wisdom will fail, but your word is true. And I pray that you would speak to us today with power and authority, that you would encourage, that you would convict, and that you would show us how we can live in a way that honors you. Amen. So what do you think? Are some sins worse than others? You know, well, clearly, uh, certain sins are worse in terms of their effect on other people. For example, in that way, uh, murder is worse than anger, or stealing is worse than just coveting. Um, but Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, and he talked about how all of those sins are really in the same line. You know, some people were thinking that if they had never murdered anyone, that they hadn't broken that commandment of God. And yet Jesus said, if you have anger in your heart, that's in the same line. In the same way, some thought, well, I've never committed adultery. You know, I've never been unfaithful in that way. But Jesus said, if you have lust in your heart, it is in the same line. That all sins are equally offensive to God. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that all sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote this. He said, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul was being like Jesus there. He was getting at the very heart of what is behind our actions. And it is those attitudes or those thoughts in our heart of lust and evil desires and greed which come out and show themselves in actions. But that's where the sin begins. It's in the heart. He went on to say in that same chapter in Colossians 3 that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. God is opposed to all such things. And you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. You know, when we look at a passage like that and we think about what the Scripture is telling us there, you know, that just stands in such sharp contrast to the world. That message runs counter to our world when it comes to the gods of pleasure. It seems that in our nation there is still this consensus that uh, violent behavior, for example, is clearly wrong. Uh, we've seen in the news this past week about the Ray Rice uh, situation in the NFL with the domestic assault and how everybody kind of came together on that and said this is really horrible what was being done. And now, sadly, if you're a Vikings fan, we're facing the same situation with Adrian Peterson and looking with what happened there. And there is this consensus in our world that violence is wrong, it's harmful, it hurts others, it can be excessive. But when it comes to the gods of pleasure, eh, we're not so sure about that. We are told that we deserve it when it comes to luxury and indulgence. In the areas of food or sexual pleasure or drinking or material possessions, you know, it's kind of like if it feels good, go ahead and do it. Eat, drink, and be merry. And we have phrases like go big or go home, you know, and it's just like go for it. As though those gods of pleasure are okay. And perhaps the reason, it, perhaps that's the reason then that gods of pleasure are so common. 
and the gods of pleasure can become idols in our lives. So what do we do? How do we live as followers of Christ in this particular area? I think it is helpful for us to remember that many of the idols in our lives began as good gifts from God. They began as good gifts from God. In James chapter 1, the scripture says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good gift comes from above. And we think about the gifts that he has given us. For example, food is a great gift from God. But sadly, there are times when it can become an obsession. I mean, think about the food that God has given us to eat. And in this country, we have just an amazing variety of vegetables and fruits and grains and meat and dairy products. And we're just blessed with an abundance. And it's not only seasonal, it's all year round. We get things shipped in from all parts of the world, so we have this wonderful food and great variety. And God has given us taste buds to enjoy it and a discernment that can, uh, you know, discern the difference between something that's good quality or something that's not, and we can enjoy the variety and the taste of all of that. I think back of how uh, toward the end of the Cold War when Jim Baker was the Secretary of State, he invited Edward Chevernadze to come to the United States. It was a diplomatic meeting, and they were out in Colorado for that. And he took Chevernadze to this supermarket out there, kind of like we would have a cub here or other grocery stores that we know. And he took Chevernadze there, and when he looked at all of the food that was available for the ordinary person in this country, the variety of it, the abundance of it, and the price, the cost, he was amazed, and it was then he realized that communism could not compete. He was thinking of his own country in the Soviet Union at that time where there were bread lines or where people would stand in line for single-item stores where you would hope to get some meat that day or you'd hope to get some bread that day or some milk that day. What a contrast. But food can become an obsession. We can use it as a comfort. We can overindulge in sugars and sodas. We can be guilty of gluttony, eating more than we need. In that same way, sexual pleasure is also a gift from God, but our world wants to make sex an end in itself. Sex is a beautiful thing within the bounds of marriage. It isn't just for having children. It is intended as a way that couples can express love to one another too. And there's an intimacy in that uh, area of marriage when two become one. But our world, again, wants to rip that out. They want to market it, promote it. They want to advertise it and use it to sell things. So we live in a world in which there's pornography and prostitution and premarital sex and children born out of wedlock. And we become a sex-obsessed culture. This summer, I was rereading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's just such a, a great book. There is a reason it is a Christian classic. And if you've not read it before, I would urge you to do that. But he was talking about how in the 1940s, C.S. Lewis heard from many of his peers in the British Academy that sex was nothing but an appetite like food. 
And they were arguing that once we recognized that and we began to simply have sex whenever we wanted it, people would cease to be driven mad by desire for it. And Lewis doubted this. And he proposed a thought experiment. He said, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing in a, a covered plate on stage, you know, and, and you could uh, get the crowd going, and then you could lift that cover and reveal maybe a pork chop or a bit of bacon, and everybody kind of screamed and yelled and cheered. Well, what would you think about a country like that? Well, you'd think that that country was either starving for food or that something had gone terribly wrong with their appetites. And Lewis argued that we are not starving for sex. There is more sex available than ever before, yet pornography, the equivalent of striptease acts, is now a trillion-dollar industry. Sex and romantic love are therefore not just an appetite like food. They are far more meaningful to us than that, but something has gone terribly wrong. Something has gotten out of control and we have made it an idol in our lives. The same thing can happen with sports or it can happen with material possessions or many other things where they are good gifts from God that he has given us, but they can get out of balance in our life. I mean, sports is a wonderful arena to learn lessons about life in terms of competition or hard work or teamwork or uh, discipline and becoming the best that you can be. But you can take that out of balance and it can become an obsession where people's lives revolve around it. And they start wearing things like horns on their helmet and cheese heads at games. And, and it just can get out of hand. I'm teasing a little bit there, but you know what I mean. How some people, you know, that it's Sunday, it's the big game that becomes the highlight of the week rather than our time with the Lord. And that becomes the thing that people look forward to or set their schedule around rather than their relationship with God. And material possessions, we love the things that God has provided for us in our homes and our appliances and cars and clothes and technology. But how much is enough? How much is enough? In the 1960s, Jim Canoop was building apartments in the San Francisco area. He was a contractor, and what he was discovering there was that in those apartments that they built, that people often felt like they didn't have enough space. They were building apartments there that didn't have garages, so people were missing that space to store some of their stuff. And so as he looked into the problem, he had the idea about building storage centers, these kind of lockers or garages where people could rent and they could store stuff. And when he came up with that idea in the 1960s, people thought he was nuts. I mean, nobody would pay to store their stuff in a shed or a garage somewhere. Nobody has that much stuff. But what began to happen was that as soon as he opened one up in San Francisco, it filled. He opened another one up in Berkeley, it filled. San Pablo, he was in San Leandro, Foster City, Colma, all the way up and down the California uh, freeways. He was opening up these storage centers, and he made millions giving people a place to store their stuff. We sure like our stuff, don't we? 
And it's hard to let go of it. It's hard for people to do that, to give it up, you know. But how much is enough? These good gifts can become a substitute for God. And that is the nature and heart of idolatry. When anything else takes its place in our life instead of God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the author, Solomon, wrote about his own experiences in this area. I want to read part of chapter 2 because in chapter 2, he uh, in particular focused on this area of pleasure. And here's what he said, Ecclesiastes 2, beginning at verse 1. He said, I thought in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of, to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So here you can imagine Solomon. He's a king. He's a wealthy king. He can pursue his pleasures to the max and just, you know, hey, we're going to try all these things. And you can see the list of things that he tried on the screen of comedy or entertainment, of wine and folly, of building projects, houses and gardens and parks of having servants, employees who could do his bidding, of possessions, herds and flocks, money, silver and gold, music, men and women singers, and sex, sexual pleasure. All of those things he indulged in. And verses 10 and 11 are his summary. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure, my heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. Meaningless. Meaningless. It didn't satisfy. It didn't last. He came up still with that empty feeling from all of the things that he pursued. You know, it's interesting how others in our world have experienced similar things like that. LeBron James, the pro basketball player, he's a four-time league MVP. He has won uh, two NBA championships. But after that first NBA championship that he won, he was interviewed and he was asked about how he felt after finally achieving that goal. And he said, what really got to me when we won the NBA championship was how short of a time it lasted. He said the championship itself went just like that. 
The confetti rains, you go into the locker room, you pop the champagne, you celebrate, you do the media, you have the parade, and then it's over. It's over. And you're looking around and you say, was that it? I mean, was that, that's all that it was? And, and he's like, you know, I wanted that feeling again. I mean, I want to capture it again. He's trying to do that again now in Cleveland with Kevin Love and the other players that are there. But it was so fleeting. Is that all there is to life? That's how it is when we set our heart upon things in this world to satisfy us. There is a longing in our heart for something more. And it is for God himself, and only he can satisfy. You see, that's why the scripture tells us that these good gifts can be enjoyed only when they are given back to God. All things come from him. All things are to be given back to him. All things are to be used for his honor and glory. And Solomon came to a very profound conclusion after all. All uh, from after all of the things that he had tried, after all of his searching. He said uh, in verse 24 and 25, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. Without him who can eat or find enjoyment. And in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he said, I know that there is nothing better for man than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. This is the gift of God. Those are profound statements. I mean, he, he tried everything that you could hope to try in this world. I mean, it wasn't just pleasure. It was also his pursuits of wisdom and great projects and undertakings that he wanted to do. But what he found out is that without God, it doesn't satisfy. You see, even the ability to enjoy life is a gift from God. You know, I think back on my own life, and I think of how I um, came to Christ at 10, high school years, was kind of riding the fence, trying to go with the crowd and fit in with friends and doing some things I shouldn't be doing at the same time, trying to be, you know, a good person, a good kid in church and singing in a choir and doing all those things and feeling this divided life and very unhappy in it. And it wasn't until for me, it was that sophomore year in college when I gave everything back to the Lord and said, Lord, here I am. And I think the biggest area for me that changed in that was in the area of joy, real joy. I mean, and I, I look back on that change in that time, the joy and contentment that came into my heart, the joy that I had in relationships that were honoring to the Lord, the joy that I had in terms of uh, just knowing I was doing what God wanted me to do. And I think of how old habits and language and speech and all those kind of things just fell away and how it was replaced by a new desire to know Christ, to love him, and to honor him. And as I was growing in that relationship with Christ, I experienced more joy in my friendships than I had ever experienced before. Joy in my activities, joy in study, joy in work, joy in leisure because of the change in my heart. 
You know, and I think about that, how that continues to this day. I love our church. I love the relationships that I have with you and with our staff team. I think of how God has blessed our family, and I just give him praise for that. And I love seeing how God is at work in their lives and how they are growing in Christ. And I love what I do. I love being a part of what God is doing in this world and in terms of our community and in terms of missions and evangelism. But even in the area of just leisure activities, you know, I, I love to hike and be outdoors and I love to take uh, photography or to take pictures of landscapes and scenes and beautiful things like that. And I am continually amazed by God's grace and the beauty of the world that he has made. And there's a contentment that says, you know what? If I don't see everything I need to see in this life now, and I don't uh, get to do everything that I'd like to do in this life, that's okay. Because there's a new world that God is creating that's going to be better by far. And that's going to last for eternity. And I don't have to stress about trying to accomplish this or that or do everything. I just want to do what God wants me to do today and follow his will for my life and let him direct and guide my steps. Even the ability to enjoy life is a gift from God. So when we struggle with sin in our life in certain areas, how do we deal with that? Well, we're going to talk about that more in the weeks ahead. But what I would say here is that the way to displace the idols in our life is not to try harder. It's not self-will. It's not just trying to push those things down, you know, and to stuff it or to deal with it in that way. The answer is to surrender everything to Christ as our Savior and Lord. It's to replace those desires that are worldly with a greater love for Christ. And when we are growing in our relationship with him and we understand his grace and his mercy for us, there's a change that takes place in our desires, in our heart, and in our values. That's what we want to experience. Because then those other things pass away. They just don't hold their attraction for us or their power for us when our love for Christ is growing. The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above. It is a gift from God, and it's intended for us to enjoy. And in 1 Timothy 4, he said this, he said, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So when we have that food that's set out at the table, that's the reason we bow and give thanks before our meals. And when we gather on those special occasions with our family and friends, that's why we bow before God and we say thank you for the things that you are doing in our life. And when you experience those unexpected blessings, those answers to prayer, those things that come up and it's just an evidence of God's grace and his mercy, it's why we stop and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. It is far more than I deserve. You see, these good gifts are meant to be enjoyed within the boundaries that God has given us in his word. They make terrible idols 
When we set them up as the end of life or the goal and think that they're going to give us meaning and satisfaction or somehow they're going to fill the emptiness in our heart, they will never satisfy. But when we give them back to the Lord and we say, here I am, Lord, I want to honor you, God blesses us with all of those good things to enjoy. If you're struggling with temptation today, if you're struggling with an addiction, if you are struggling with an area that feels like it's, it's a strong, strong pull and it's become maybe even an obsession for you, then you need to talk to a pastor. You need to talk to a Christian friend. You need to talk to a Christian counselor and share those things that you are dealing with because we want to help you. But most of all, we need to bring those things to God and to confess our sin to him and ask for his forgiveness and his power to be at work with us because he's the only one who can help us to be free. The place to start is with confessing our sins to God and surrendering our life to Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, you alone know the heart, and sometimes we can deceive ourselves in that. And we think that we're doing okay when we're not, or we think that we can handle the problems on our own when we can't. And Father, today, just in the quietness of our heart, we confess to you our sin. We confess to you those things in our life that have become an idol, those things that have drawn us away from our love and our devotion to you. Father, forgive us. Hear our prayer. Draw us back, empower us by your Holy Spirit, and enable us to walk with you with joy, with blessing, with great satisfaction. In Jesus' name, amen.